Um, again, if you have your Bibles in James chapter 5, I want to spend a little time uh, talking about comfort and, and talking about encouragement in the midst of sufferings, you know, uh, in the midst of suffering. If you heard last week's sermon, then you recall uh, that the first six verses in James start with a warning. And, and the warning is actually to the wealthy who are using their wealth in wicked ways. In verse 7, however, there is a shift from a warning to the wealthy that are using their wealth in wicked ways to a word of warmth and comfort to those that are being oppressed and exploited by the wicked wealthy. In James, for, in the first six verses, James is speaking prophetically about the wealthy who use and gain their wealth through wickedness. Um, they, they, they've hoarded their wealth, James says. They've exploited the poor and the innocent worker, James says. Their greed um, has even resulted in the death of those under the weight of their oppression. And James says as a result of this reckless greed that they show that they have, that, that their mistreatment um, of their workers has resulted in cries coming from the workers. And those cries have, have, have been called out or have been pushed out towards God and they have reached God. They have reached the heavens. James chapter 5 verse 4 says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mold your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So verses 1 through 6 serve as a warning to those with the means of, of, of wealth and money. And it serves as a warning that they are guilty of abusing those means. But then look at verse 7. Verse 7 begins to unpack a message of warmth to those without the means, without the money who are simply by the grace of God just trying to hold fast, just trying to get through. So James is comforting those in need of comfort while confronting those in need of confronting. Now, this is a very, very important point that we need to pause and just consider. You see, we won't get this right, this confronting and this comforting, if we love our camps and our tribes, our political tribes, our national tribes, our racial and ethnic tribes, if we love them more than we love people. Here's what I mean by that. See, some of us love to be loved by our camp too much to confront them. And some of us love to be loved by our camp too much to comfort those who are outside of it. We won't get this right, this ideal of confronting and comforting if we love ourselves too much either. In other words, sometimes we can love ourselves so much that, we all, that we're always eager to confront others because it's an opportunity to bring them down and, and raise us up, to expose their faults and highlight their failings. And yet there are often times that we love ourselves so much that we, while we are always eager to confront others, we are always eager to comfort ourselves and withhold the comfort that we give ourselves, withhold it from others. I say all of that to say that what James is doing here is not an easy thing to do. It is, it is, it is easier than we sometimes understand to confront those in need of comforting and comfort those in need 
of confronting. So what James is doing here requires wisdom, it requires discernment, but it also requires an ever-increasing love for God and love for neighbor, all neighbor. And most importantly, it requires the grace and the mercy and the power of God's Spirit. And all of this is on display in this moment with James. As you turn to verse 7 again, we see James is speaking with compassion and concern and a steadying influence that you would expect to come from an older, more mature brother in the faith. In fact, James, in just these, three, in just these few verses, verses 7 through 11, he addresses this, this audience that he is writing to as brothers four different times. He says, first, be patient, brothers. He also says, don't grumble, against one another, brothers. He also says, consider the example of the prophets, brothers. And then, of course, in verse 12, which we won't cover much this morning, but nevertheless, it's there, do not swear, brothers. These verses read like a man pulling in a group of believers that are weak and that are weary and that are worn out. And he pulls them in close to him and he tells them that it is going to be okay, family. And some of us today are in need of hearing those words right now. It is going to be okay, family. Especially after a year like the year that we are living in right now, 2020, 2020 begs for somebody to say it's going to be okay, family. This week we will mark 200 dead in seven months due to this virus, this pandemic in this country. With all the struggle that we face, folks are out of work and struggling to find work. With all of the division that we face, racial and civil unrest is, is just sprouting up like wildfire everywhere around our country. And speaking of wildfires, look at the destruction on the West Coast right now with millions of acres literally going up in smoke and flames as those wildfires rage through the land. After a year like the one we're living in right now, I'm sure some of you need to hear it's going to be okay, family. And I'm here to tell you that it is through James's words. This is what the Lord is telling us this morning through James. Verse 7 says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The first word of encouragement James gives us is to be patient. This is an important word that has to be shared with us in our suffering because there are times in the struggle that our patience wears thin and we want to take matters in our own hands. Sometimes we take notice of the wicked's prosperity and we say to ourselves, man, why do I keep pursuing God's way? and have very little material gain to show for it? Why don't I just pursue the way that the wicked is pursuing? To, James, to that, James says, be patient and remember the words of, the Lord, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who says, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But then there are other times where we grow tired of being stepped on and being mistreated to the point where we say, nah, I'm taking matters in my own hand. Eye for an eye. To that, James says, 
Be patient. And remember the words of our brother, the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 12, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The first word of encouragement is to be patient. Here's the first question. What are we waiting for? James answer. James answers in verse 7. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. As one theologian puts it, Christian waiting is not waiting for something, but it is waiting for someone. Some argue that this coming of the Lord that James is referring to is pointing back to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., Some saw this as a moment in which the wicked were facing judgment for all of their oppressive ways. But most likely, James is pointing to the return of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ. The final judgment, the end of the world. The return of Jesus has always been a source of comfort for the suffering saints around the globe and through the years. Take, for example, the African-American slaves. They literally wrote hymns, sung in the fields, pointing to the return of Christ and serving as an encouragement to continue on. Songs that we now call Negro spirituals. Songs like, soon we'll be done with the troubles of the world. We're going to live with God. Songs like, I'm going to tell you about the coming of the judgment. Fare you well. Fare you well. James here, instead of turning to song, however, to encourage the saints, he turns to illustrations and examples. One one illustration, two models. The first illustration, or or the first thing that he turns to is the illustration of the farmer. He says in verse 7 again, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. James makes a familiar point of connection with his people by pointing them to the familiar farmer, someone in which an agriculture culture like theirs or an agricultural culture like theirs would be very familiar with. Here are a few things that we know about the farmer. The first thing is that a lot of what the farmer has to wait on is beyond his control completely and totally, namely the rain, the early and the late rains. Regarding this ideal of early and late rains, one scholar notes that while three-quarters of the average rainfall in in Palestine falls in December through February, it is the rain at the beginning and the end of the growing season that is most critical to the farmers. Those rains are the rains needed to produce the harvest, and the farmer, no matter how hard he has worked, is dependent or was dependent upon the Lord to bring those rains. When James says be patient, he is encouraging the saints to be patient and to trust God in their patience with what they cannot control. Like the farmer, the weight can certainly be hard. Like the farmer, how the rain comes and when the rain comes is outside of our control. 
In other words, how the Lord comes and when the Lord comes, and when the Lord comes, rather, is outside of our control. Like the farmer, when the, when the fruit, however, that we've patiently waited for arrives, we realize that it was all worth it. Here's what James says in chapter 1, pointing to this idea of it being all worth it. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It's all worth it. Be patient. Remain steadfast under trial. And for, and for when, we have stood, when we have stood the test, we will receive the crown of life. Here's the second thing about farmers or that we know about farmers. The farmer's waiting is never passive. The farmer waits, but the farmer waits with action. He works with, he works the land, he tills the ground, he casts the seed, he gathers when it's time to gather, he, he observes his crop for, for signs of infestation and does what he can to protect his crop from that infestation. He waits, but he does not wait without action. His waiting is active. For those that are suffering, the picture of the farmer is not a picture of passivity. James even gives a glimpse of this active waiting with the words in verse 8. He says, you also be patient. And then he says this, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. Another translation says, strengthen your hearts. Another translation says, stand firm. In other words, don't let the struggle lead you to the kind of despair that paralyzes you. Or as some elders used to say, and Curtis Mayfield, keep on keeping on. Standing firm doesn't mean standing with no resistance. You have to exert strength and force in order to stand firm against that which is opposing you. You can't stand firm passively. You have to stand firm actively. Listen to what Paul says about establishing our hearts. He says this, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. This is what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. One way you stand firm is by holding to the traditions that have been taught to us either by spoken word or by letter. What is Paul referring to? Paul is referring to the word of God. How do you stay encouraged in a world that seems to grow more discouraging every single day? By clinging to the word of God, by reading your Bible and by rehearsing those words in your heart consistently and constantly. Listen to, the, what, listen to what the psalmist says about the word of God in Psalm 19. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. He says of the word in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. In the midst of this season that we are currently, currently living in, 
this season of great turmoil and chaos, how much time are you setting aside for the reading of the word of God? The word that the psalmist says that revives the soul. The word that the psalmist says makes wise the simple. The word that the psalmist says leads to the rejoicing of the heart. But that isn't the only thing in 2 Thessalonians uh, Paul says about establishing the heart. And right, right after that, in verse 16 through 17, he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Comfort and establish our hearts in every good work and word. See, we stand firm so that we can speak and so that we can work unto God. Our hearts are comforted and established so that we can speak words of life to others and so that we can perform deeds of life for others. Have you ever been around a child that is doing nothing but waiting on something? Maybe it's a trip to a place that they're excited to get to. Maybe it's a present that they've been eagerly anticipating. It is one of the most annoying, annoying experiences to have to endure. The child is waiting on something, and without having something to to keep that child busy, the child just sits and asks, when are you coming, when is it coming, and complains and murmurs. Wines even. And typically it's not a pleasant experience. Well, sometimes the same can be said about us. See, oftentimes when we are waiting passively, without acting, when we tend to when we tend to fix our attention on what we don't have, what's not working, what's already failed, then it tends to not be a very pleasant experience. But when we are actively waiting on the Lord, when we are, as James and Paul call it, when we are waiting by establishing our hearts, when we are waiting by serving the Lord in word and deed, when we are waiting while keeping on, keeping on, you'll find that there is not nearly as much time to dwell on the struggles that we're experiencing. Sure, we still have moments where we dwell, but there's so much more to focus on, so much more fulfillment to be had in such a life. One more thing about establishing our hearts. While it's not immediately clear in James 5, Paul makes it abundantly clear in Thessalonians. Again, 2 Thessalonians Let me read the text again. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Did you hear that in the very beginning? Paul prays for God to establish our hearts because it is God who is the one who is ultimately doing the establishing. It is God who is ultimately causing us to stand firm. And some of you are going through the most difficult time in your life right now. Some of you watching 
are going through a difficult time. Maybe it's because of the pandemic. Maybe it's because everything just seems to be piling up at this particular time, even in the midst of this pandemic. Maybe it's because that even in the midst of this pandemic, you've lost someone that you dearly love. And you hear James saying, establish your heart, stand firm, and, 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 and you say, you're saying to yourself, I don't have the strength to stand firm. I don't have the strength to establish my heart. Well, here's the good news. You don't have to do it in your own strength. Paul looks to the Lord to establish the hearts of his people, and we should as well. How often are you turning to the Lord in prayer for strength to stand firm in this season? For strength to continue to lean on God's word, for strength to serve the Lord through word and through deed. For strength to keep on, keeping on. This is how we overcome like the farmer, by establishing our hearts, standing firm, keeping on, keeping on, while we await the glorious return of Jesus Christ. Now, in the middle of his unpacking of these illustrations and models, Paul or or James throws a statement in here that I want to take a look at in verse 9. Let's begin in verse 8, which, by the way, this is what happens when we don't establish our hearts and when we don't fix our eyes on Jesus and his return. Beginning at verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another. Brothers, so that you may not be judged, behold, the judge is standing at the door. You see, one tendency in suffering is to turn inward on ourselves. Of course, we see that in all sorts of ways. We see that in our depression. We see that in our anger. We see that in our bitterness and our rage and our acting out in moments of suffering. We see that in our fears in suffering. But another very common tendency in suffering is not just to turn inward on ourselves, but to turn on one another. It's been said that when we struggle, it's the closest people to us that feel the weight of that struggle first. Naturally, in any situation of suffering, when our focus is fixed on the circumstance, when our focus is fixed on the lack, when our focus is fixed on the difficulty, We are tempted to turn on one another in grumbling rather than turn to one another in encouragement. We've seen this in our homes. How easy is it in the midst of hardship to turn on the people who know you and love you most? How easy is it to turn on your wife or your husband or your children or your parents or your siblings or your friends? We've certainly seen it in many moments of history within the, within the American church. How easy is it in the midst of the strain that society is placing on us to turn on one another? How easy is it to begin to turn on one another even in God's church and to begin to grumble against each other? How easy is it to begin to make the brothers and sisters in the faith the source of all of our troubles, whether it be white Christians or whether it be black Christians or whether it be Asian Christians or Hispanic Christians. As a matter of fact, when you peel back the layers on a lot of unrest and division, 
in our culture and society, what you will uncover are people that are hurting and looking for someone to blame for their pain. In their pain, they have turned inward and they have turned on one another. Not because the one another is the cause, but because they're close enough to feel the rage. Now, let me say that that doesn't mean that all such claims are without merit. I don't, I don't want this to be an excuse for the abuser or the offender or the oppressor to escape accountability. Sometimes we should direct our offenses towards one another because that's where the violations are coming from. And that call to accountability is just and that call to accountability is right. Those are the moments in which confrontation is necessary. I'm just saying that there is a real tendency in the midst of the pain and in the midst of the grief to unfairly turn on one another when we haven't turned our focus towards Jesus. It becomes easier to do. Speaking of which, in addition to the farmer illustration, James also gives us two models for how to suffer ill treatment with patience. The first model deals precisely with this ideal of speaking up when necessary, the model of the prophets. James says in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, we can't tell if James has any particular prophets in mind, but one prophet that immediately comes to my mind is Jeremiah, the one that they call the weeping prophet. See, God's people were given Jeremiah as a voice to plead countless times with them to turn their affections and their heart back to God before it was too late, and yet they refused time and time and time again. And he pleaded with them to turn from their sin time and time and time again, to, to turn from their idolatry, to turn from their injustice. And yet time and time again, they refused. And they not only refused his counsel and his warnings, but they, they ruthlessly opposed his warnings by imprisoning Jeremiah. You see, Jeremiah was in prison for warning the people against their idolatry and for warning and for prophesying to them to turn. And they didn't want to listen. And so as a result, they fell under the captivity that Jeremiah prophesied that they would. And yet even through the difficulty of suffering, God still required Jeremiah to speak. And so through the difficulty of watching his people fall into the captivity of idolatry and fall into the captivity of Babylon, Jeremiah kept speaking what thus said the Lord. You see, oftentimes when we think about suffering, we tend to carry this idea of suffering in silence. We tend to think that's the only type of righteous suffering, suffering without saying anything. And there is some truth to that. We, when we suffer, we certainly shouldn't murmur. We should be guarded against our murmuring and guarded against our bickering and guarded against our complaining and obviously guarded against our grumbling, as we mentioned just a few minutes ago. But just because we don't murmur when we suffer doesn't mean that we don't speak when we suffer. The prophets are an example of how to suffer, not simply because of how they suffered while maintaining their hope and their focus on God 
but it's also because they called to account those who needed to be called to account as they suffered. The prophets not only suffered evil, but they spoke out against evil even as they suffered it. The prophets not only suffered injustice, but they spoke out against injustice even as they suffered it. This is what it means to suffer like the prophets. Not just suffer well, saints, but when necessary, suffer boldly and suffer courageously. There may come a time in life where God not only causes you to suffer alongside of people, but he calls you to advocate for those people. Isaiah challenged us to not only bring aid to those who were comforting or who were suffering, but to plead their cause, to speak up for them. Perhaps it's the unborn that need our voice. Perhaps it's those who are abused that need our voice. Perhaps it's those who appear to be almost trapped in a systemic cycle of poverty that needs our voice. Perhaps it's the refugees and the immigrants that are seeking aid that needs our voice. Perhaps it's brothers and sisters suffering racial violence and ill treatment, partisanship or, or, or partiality, rather, that need our voice. Suffering like the prophets means that our suffering does not muzzle us. But while we suffer, we continue to speak in the name of the Lord. The apostles gave us an example, by the way, as they went about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel and testifying that Jesus is the only way. And to, in, in order to escape the wrath of God that leads to eternal damnation, one must trust Jesus Christ with their life and turn from their own, turn from their life of sin and turn to Jesus. And as they were sharing that gospel, they were, per, they were persecuted, they were beaten, they were imprisoned, and they were told to keep silent. And they said, no, we can't keep silent. Because it's not just simply about suffering well, saying Sometimes it's about suffering courageously and suffering boldly. Lastly, James gives us one more model to serve in Job. This is the only place in the New Testament where Job is referenced and he is only mentioned in one other place besides his own story in the Old Testament, and that is in the book of Ezekiel. So if you're not familiar with the story of Job, it's okay. The book of Job is about this very wealthy and, and prosperous and righteous man who is walking upright before God. When Satan approaches God with a proposition, you see, God says, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Because Satan says, I've been looking for someone to test. God says, have you considered Job? He's upstanding. He's upright. He's righteous. He pursues me. He loves me. Satan says, well, the only reason he loves you, God, is because you keep this hedge of protection around him. You give him everything he asks for. But you take all those things away, and he will curse you to his face, curse you to your face. You see, Satan basically is saying, God, his commitment towards you is about what you give him, not, but not about who you are. And so God allows Satan to test Job. And Satan takes everything from him, his property, his workers, his children, his health and his strength. And the book is all about this journey that Job takes with God in light of all that he has lost. Now, Job does not suffer perfectly throughout that book. There are moments when he doesn't quite speak as he ought or act as he ought. But see, saints, the story isn't about suffering perfectly as much as it is, it's about suffering steadfastly, standing firm, when everything is gone. 
And as a result of his steadfastness in the face of suffering, the Lord restores Job in the end completely. And the testing of his faith builds even more character and steadfastness in him in the end. James looks to Job. He says, there's an example for us to follow. He says it in verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed to remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James is saying, saints, when we look at Job, here's what we, here's what we learn. We learn that God not only has purpose in our suffering, but we learn that his purpose is filled with his compassion and his mercy. We see that purpose from the very beginning of this book that we are walking through, the book of James. In James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is saying that God is saying, or God rather is using the hardships of our lives, to mold us and shape us. But not only that, like Job, God is going to bring an end to this hardship. That through his, because of his compassion and because of his mercy, that we can trust that the hardships will come to an end. And how does he do that? He does that through the one who suffers an even greater suffering on your behalf and on my behalf. The one who suffered an even greater suffering with purpose. The one who suffered an even greater suffering because of his compassion and his mercy that he carried towards us. We know that our suffering will eventually come to an end because Jesus Christ suffered once and for all for us to bring an end to our suffering. The suffering that you face here in this world is meant to show you that you were made for more than this world. This is not it. The Lord Jesus, he came down from heaven and he took on the form of a servant and he lived the perfect life free from sin that none of us was able to live or are able to live and in doing so became the perfect sacrifice to die the death that all of us deserved because of our sin. And what does he require of us? He requires that we trust him. That we turn from our life of sin, that we turn from doing things our way, and we turn in faith and in trust to him. Trusting him as Lord and trusting him as Savior. When we do this, then we can rest assured that the suffering one day will all come to an end. This is what James means when he is encouraging us to be patient as we wait for the coming of the Lord. You see, when we, when we do this, we can take confidence that we soon will truly be done with the troubles of the world. You see, when we do this, we can take confidence that we surely will soon Go to live with God. Would you pray? God.